Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three dwellings, one for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. How simple is the heart of man. Peter and James and John have followed Jesus up a high mountain, probably at dawn, tripping over rocks and snags of roots and brambles, losing their footing into divots and sandy soil, first in the dark, now in a shaft of morning light, hotter, higher, until they reach the summit. And then, before they can even catch their breath, our Lord is transfigured before them, and his face shines like the sun, and his clothes become dazzling white. And as if that weren't enough, suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Jesus, resplendent in otherworldly light, not just representing the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, but talking to them. The great patriarchs of, the, of old, lost to the world for hundreds of years, are here conversing with the Son of God, and Peter says, oh good, I'll build a house. <laughs> Out of what? Did Peter lug up a pack with him up the mountain? Is he going to put down tent posts and canvas? Or does he have in mind to start stacking up stones and hacking down cypress trees? Are Moses and Elijah going to help out or just carry on chatting as he busies himself? What's the lead time on this? Are we talking a few days or a few hours? There are going to be three of them, so we'd better get the order right as well. John knows the way back down the hill, so maybe he could rush to the village and pick up a plumb line and some twine. Surely there's a verse in Deuteronomy about this. I like to think that Matthew has done Peter a small mercy here because it seems likely that the one line that the gospel records is not the only one out of his mouth. Rarely does it require an act of God to interrupt a person's monologue. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. I love Peter in this moment. His faithfulness, his foolishness, his blind, beautiful, bursting naivete. Here are Moses and Elijah communing with Jesus, our Lord, and Peter says, I shall build them a house, something that will shelter them, something that will contain them, something that might keep them up here with us for only a moment longer. How we cling to those things that we love and that we know we must lose. How desperately we try to contain a God that cannot be contained. Peter's impulse is an all-too-human one, so thoroughly practical that it becomes preposterous. Peter's so concerned with tent posts and canvas that he looks right past the God among us. It's an easy thing to do. We celebrate Jesus' transfiguration twice in the church year, once in August, as one of the great miracles of Jesus' ministry, a moment in which the veil between the heavens and the earth is momentarily rent and Jesus' divinity is made manifest before the disciples. And we celebrate it today, a last brilliant flash of light before the season of Lent. But one of the great peculiarities of this moment is that Jesus demands of his disciples silence and secrecy. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision 
until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, if we're to go by the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, we know that they won't listen, and certainly Jesus expects that they won't. What in Mark we call the messianic secret, the secret of Jesus' divinity, isn't a particularly well-kept one. But perhaps the disciples' shaky grasp of confidentiality has less to do with disobedience and everything to do with incomprehension. How do you process impossible truths if you can't talk to anyone about them? Because, of course, the disciples don't yet understand that the road down the mountain leads to Jerusalem, to the crowd, to the cross, to the tomb. Jesus' transfiguration is a moment out of time. Here he bridges the old and the new covenants. He stands up on a high mountain with Moses and Elijah on his right and his left. But in just 40 days, we'll find him on that rude little hill, flanked not by patriarch and prophet, but by two suffering, bleeding human beings. Everything about our journey these last few months, from Christmas through Epiphany Tide, has been about the mystery of the Incarnation, the recognition of Jesus' humanity. Now, on the cusp of Lent, we ponder the blinding light of his divinity, very God and very man. Central to the disciples' recognition of Jesus as the Son of God is the fear of loss. Again and again, Jesus foretells his own death but the disciples can't quite wrap their heads around it. They are unable, or maybe more, unwilling to see what lies ahead. Maybe he means John the Baptist, they say just a few verses on. But as Jesus becomes more and more insistent, the disciples become more and more distressed. Peter's little tents up on the mountainside are looking pretty good about now. How attractive is the hope of love without loss? of the Incarnation without the crucifixion. After all the recognition of the booming voice of God, of God's plan of salvation, we realize that the plan's a frightening one. It's one which sends the disciples cowering to the ground, hiding under their packs, until they feel the touch of Jesus' hand. Get up and do not be afraid. For the author of Peter's epistle, perhaps Peter himself, the mystery of the transfiguration is a confirmation of Christian truth. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he writes, because we've been eyewitnesses to his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves have heard this voice come from heaven while we were there with him on the holy mountain. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and no dwelling of our devising, however humble or grand, can tarry him on his way. These are the truths that we confront on the mountaintop. But the transfiguration forces us to confront one last question. What about Peter and James and John? Were they transfigured? Did their faces shine? Were their garments changed? Did they exude some inner light that was suddenly visible to everyone else out in the world? Did it change the way that they saw, that they prayed, that they ministered? 
How have we been transfigured in the presence of God? How are we to carry that transfiguring light out into the world? Peter warns us that prophecy is not something to hold lightly. We're called to be stewards of the word of God. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place, he writes, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In some 40 days, we'll bring that shining light in at the back of this nave, the paschal flame, a literal light of Christ shining in a dark place. Peter's epistle owes everything to that truth. Peter is reading retroactively the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop as the preamble, as the foreshadowing, the foretaste of Jesus' glorious resurrection. It's a sign of hope, a sign of the undeniable yet unfathomable divinity of Christ. It's a vision of triumph. But that's Peter as an old man, a man who has seen the risen Christ trampling death under his feet. This is not the Peter whom we encounter today. That Peter is a young man, tired, sore, scared out of his wits, trundling down a mountainside with a heavy pack and a heavy burden. Having just seen the most extraordinary thing in his life and unable to share it with anyone. Not fully understanding what it means, but with a sneaking suspicion that the end's going to be bloody. This young Peter is still out in the back country, wandering in the wilderness with his Lord towards an uncertain fate. I wonder if you also, like I, feel like Peter from time to time trying to grasp onto solid things, to singular moments, trying to control, to order, to understand. So for now, as we enter into this Lent, let us remember that we always carry that light with us in our hearts, the light of the Paschal flame, the light of the morning star, the light that led three wise men to a sleeping babe in swaddling bands, and the light that will burst from the Easter tomb casting out the darkness of sin and death. Like the disciples, we are coming down the mountain and wending our way to Jerusalem. Much of the journey will be made in darkness. So tend to that light, stoke the fire, share that radiance with the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.